This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. My name is Sue Saxon and I'm a creative producer here at the museum and I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and to pay respects to their leaders past, present and to come. Welcome to the third of nine talks in the inaugural Human Nature Lecture Series. This is a landmark series that marks the collaboration of four major universities within the Australian Museum and with academics from around Australia and the world who are leaders in the environmental humanities. The Australian Museum seeks to make nature, indigenous cultures and science accessible and relevant to everyone. It is a custodian of a collection of more than 18 million objects providing a record of the environmental and cultural histories and diversities of the Australian and Pacific regions. The museum's scientific collections and ongoing research informs understanding of some of the most pressing environmental and social challenges facing our region, including the loss of biodiversity, a changing climate and the assertion of cultural identity. The museum is a place where the past meets the future and where exploration, understanding and care for our world is inspired by the research of our scientists and cultural specialists, by our exhibitions and by events like this Human Nature Lecture Series through which we strive to investigate and communicate the relationship between people, culture and the nat natural environment. I hope you'll join us for the rest of the series and spread the word far and wide because we do have an extraordinary lineup of speakers still to come. We're delighted that tonight's lecture will be broadcast on ABC Radio National's Big Ideas, so you can listen to it again later. And so, to introduce our esteemed guest, I'd now like to hand over to Dr Donna Houston, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Geography and Planning at Macquarie University, and one of the organisers of this series. Donna is the Director of the Department's Urban Planning Program and the Co-Director of its Environmental Humanities Research Cluster. Thank you, Donna. Thank you, Sue. It's with great pleasure that I welcome you to the third uh, talk in the Human Nature Environmental Humanities Lecture Series. This series has emerged out of ongoing conversations and collaborations in the environmental humanities. Australia, and Sydney in particular, is a leading hub of research in this field. And throughout 2018, the series includes nine leading scholars in environmental humanities to consider the roles and responsibilities of humans in a more than human world and in a time of rapid and varied environmental change. Our speakers draw on approaches from history, anthropology, literature, philosophy, human geography and related disciplines to explore what the humanities can offer in addressing some of the most pressing problems that we face today. I would like to acknowledge the work of my colleagues in bringing this series together. Some of them, unfortunately, can't be here tonight. Tom Van Doren and Estrida uh, Niemis from the University of Sydney, Juan Salazar uh, from Western Sydney University, Judy Motion from the University of New South Wales, Emily O'Gorman from Macquarie University, and Tanya Goldberg from the Australian Museum. Our speaker this evening is Mike Hume. Mike is Professor of Human Geography at the University of Cambridge, his influential work sits at the intersection of climate, history and culture, 
studying how knowledge about climate and its changes is made and represented, and analysing the numerous ways in which the idea of climate change is deployed in public discourse around the world. His latest book, Weathered, Cultures of Climate, was published by SAGE in November 2016. Previous books include the widely acclaimed Why We Disagree About Climate Change by Cambridge University Press in 2009. Mike's previous positions have included chairs at King's College London and the University of East Anglia, where from 2000 to 2007, he was the founding director of the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research. Since 2008, he's been the founding editor-in-chief of the review journal Wiley Interdisciplinary Reviews, Why or Why is Climate Change? Tonight, Mike will be speaking um, on the topic of cultures of climate. Please join me in welcoming him. Thank you. Thanks very much, Donna. And uh, thank you to uh, your colleagues uh, uh, for uh, extending the invitation to me to speak and to the museum here for hosting uh, uh, very generously this, uh, this lecture opportunity. And thank you for coming uh, to the talk this evening. So one mid-October afternoon last year, the midday skies over Britain turned an eerie shade of orange, bedimming the atmosphere, altering moods and unsettling people's sense of normality. Hashtag apocalypse started trending on Twitter, and newspaper headlines spoke of Britain's Martian sky and the day Britain's sky turned orange. Journalists alluded to times past when strange weather events were regarded as omens of doom, but now, they claimed, in 2017, unusual weather is no longer the sign of doom to come. It is the doom itself. So interpretations of extreme and unusual weather have always reflected human fears of a world unraveling. People have sought and continue to seek comforting explanations of the sky's unusual appearance, reassuring us that such apparitions are not portentous of fearful events to come. Fortunately, Britain's October sky, uh, orange sky, could safely be explained as a result of the decaying hurricane Ophelia in training and dispersing Saharan dust particles in the high atmosphere above Britain. But the public reaction to this episode spoke of a wider unease about today's climate and whether its supposedly normal and reassuringly patterned behavior can be relied upon any longer. Unusual weather nowadays acts as an allegory for a world disturbed and set loose from stable, comforting, and predictable foundations. Weird or freakish weathers are now publicly interrogated in Western societies to find the deeper political, cultural, or moral meanings of climate change. Just as has strange weather for many other cultures in past and present. This idea of climate change then carries this sense of unsettling. The weather is no longer perceived as normal. And it's symptomatic of the realization that humans have irretrievably altered their world. Their weather world now 
just as much as their altered bodies, cities, ecosystems, landscapes, and oceans. Hence it is that these red October skies indeed are somehow portentous of the new threatening climates of the Anthropocene. So that vignette of this uh, orange skies over Britain offers the backdrop to this talk. I'm interested in exploring this idea of climate. What climate is, how our idea of climate changes over time, and the effects that the idea of climate has on our imaginative worlds. And the overall argument here is that we have to develop uh, a better understanding of the cultural functions of the idea of climate, which takes us well beyond simply scientific conceptions uh, or scientific uh, predictions. And uh, for me as a geographer, uh, by training, uh, and by therefore by instinct, um, I conduct uh, this inquiry from that particular vantage point, but more broadly, it fits very well into the, this field of environmental humanities, and of course, which this uh, lecture forms uh, part of the wider series. So the ideas that I'm going to summarize here are, are drawn uh, heavily on this uh, recent book. Uh, I published Weathered Cultures of Climate, uh, which itself is a, I think of this as a, a prequel to my earlier book on why we disagree about climate change. Uh, and the point of that is that we actually have to do more work to understand the idea of climate itself before we can fully understand the reasons why we disagree about climate change. What sort of thing is climate? And therefore, why do we get into arguments uh, about what to do about climate change? So here I draw upon historical and geographical and cultural uh, dimensions of this idea. The idea that climate is a way of people living securely with their weather. And the book therefore plays on this idea of weather. People weather, we become weathered through the process of weathering. True of people, in fact, and in fact true of all entities, sentient or inanimate. And the book explores us through these three different dimensions, um, how climates come to be known, the knowledges that we construct around climate, the powers that climate exerts over the human imagination, and uh, the way in which people approach the future possibilities of trying to keep control of our climate, whether by prediction or redesigning the climates or through new forms of governance. So I'm going to pick uh, illustrative uh, dimensions uh, of these different elements uh, to illustrate uh, my argument tonight. So first of all, let me just outline some of the uh, ways in which uh, people think about climate. And initially, the two dominant uh, ways in which climate is uh, thought of uh, in Western science. So we have, for example, here the classic definition uh, that I first got uh, exposed to as a geography student uh, over 30 years ago. Uh, it's formalized by the World Meteorological Organization, um, <clears throat> and it follows uh, on uh, earlier uh, traditions of 19th century geographers and meteorologists uh, that here climate is a statistical 
uh, construction. In, and in a sense, it's actually quite arbitrary. The idea of choosing 30, originally it was 35, but choosing 30 years uh, of numerical measurements of the atmosphere of a particular place, um, and by averaging and aggregating these together, we get an adequate description of the climate of a place. It imposes quite arbitrarily some order, some numerical order on the continually turbulent atmosphere. Time and space, then, in this uh, definition, are quite artificially segmented. But nevertheless, weather, the way in which the atmosphere is continually turning itself over, becomes ordered through numbers, through measurements, and through aggregation. The other uh, scientific approach to thinking of climate um, is more as a, uh, <coughs> a, a, an analytical uh, or mechanistic system. This is uh, the way in which, for example, the United Nations Panel on Climate Change thinks of climate. Uh, here, a description of the state and the dynamics of the physical uh, planetary system. It's a mechanical system of moving parts and flows which is mathematically predictable. We can simulate this inside uh, a computer. And this view of climate, this systemic view of climate, has become dominant uh, uh, during the last uh, three or four decades, a time when Earth system science, um, <clears throat> produced by uh, uh, totalizing satellite observations of the planet, pervasive instrumentation of the atmosphere, <clears throat> international scientific cooperation, uh, and numerical computation. So those are the two dominant uh, contemporary scientific framings of the idea of climate. But climate has not always been understood in this way. There are much older uh, and different ways that people have understood the idea. Thus, if we look at the etymology of the word climate, its origins, it takes us back to classical Greece. And here, early attempts of climatic classification by thinkers like Herodotus and Ptolemy revealed that for the Greeks and the Romans, uh, they, uh, surprisingly, uh, maybe not, ended up inhabiting these uh, ideal, forgiving climates of the eastern uh, Mediterranean. And these contrasted to the dangerous climates of the north and the south, the frigid and the torrid zones. So for the Greeks and the Romans, the idea of climate uh, <coughs> helped to fix uh, a, a very ordered and stable explanation of the relations between weather, place, civilization, and race. Climates were these fixed zonal entities that held an understanding of the world together uh, for these early uh, Mediterranean civilizations. Or we could jump to the uh, uh, 19th century, early 19th century, and Alexander von Humboldt, uh, the German uh, geographer and explorer, uh, who thought a lot about climate. And for Humboldt, he, he thought of climate in a much more relational sense. Synthesis and connections uh, were important. For von Humboldt, the idea of climate was holistic. Climate represented the totality uh, of atmospheric phenomena uh, at a particular place, uh, linked to other biophysical properties, uh, as in his classic uh, conception of Andean uh, biozones. 
So it was, it was synthetic in the sense of holding things together in particular locations, but also it was holistic because von Humboldt connected climates together geographically around the world. He came up with the notion of thermolines or isolines, ways of mapping points together that had similar uh, uh, meteorological characteristics. So here climate was a synthesis in space. So as with the classical thinkers in the Mediterranean, for von Humboldt, climate uh, was uh, anthropocentric and, and climate was relational. And it embraced the idea of place. But then, too, there's another way of thinking of the idea of climate and how we understand climate. Climate is something that captures our prevailing attitudes and conditions. This is a more metaphorical reading of climate, maybe less to do with the weather of the atmosphere, but more to do with uh, the notion of culture, our shared systems of symbolic uh, meanings and social practices that hold a particular polity or a particular society together. So we speak of political and economic and moral climates. Uh, for example, in this uh, uh, book by the theologian Michael Northcott, uh, a moral climate playing on the connections between this metaphorical use of climate and the physical definitions I mentioned before. But before, beyond these scientific, historical, and metaphorical definitions, I want to try to uh, tease out a further way of thinking about the idea of climate. Uh, one that uh, both underlies these other usages, uh, but also, I think, extends it in important imaginative ways. It also, I think, escapes uh, the specific confines of these scientific conceptions or historical settings. And we can see this, I think, applied across different human cultures. So what I want to suggest, then, is the idea of climate is a necessary invention of the human mind. We need it in order to live reliably in the world around us. Climate as an idea is a way of stabilizing the relationship between, on the one hand, the turbulence of the atmosphere, the weather, and on the other, the reflective and patterned ways in which we live culturally. So here, rather than von Humboldt's relational view of climate between one place and another, or between the physical and uh, the physiological, this view of climate is relational between weather and culture, between the atmosphere and our human imaginations and cultural ways of life. Climate, therefore, for us, emerges from our instinct, our need of finding pattern amongst chaos, our need for degrees of order and stability in the everyday. Climate, in this sense, develops the possibility of trust in the stability and the viability of human cultural life. Without the idea of climate, or something like climate, our creative human life would become undirected, disorderly, and unstable. So in essence, the idea of climate in this thinking is an idea 
in which we place our trust. And so you have the common uh, aphorisms, uh, such as climate is what you expect, weather is what you get. The idea of climate offers this, uh, this container, this linguistic uh, and sensory repertoire through which the arbitrariness of the weather becomes interpreted and tamed. Or as the historian of science, uh, Lorraine Dust Dustin, has explained in her essay about the boundaries of nature, she says, without well-founded expectations, the world of causes and promises falls apart. So in this sense, the idea of climate cultivates the possibility of a stable psychological life and meaningful human action in the world. Climate both identifies the degree of order in the weather, but at the same time, it's an idea which imposes a degree of order in our cultural response. The idea of climate stops the human world falling apart. It gives us the confidence to plan and to act in the world. But if this is so, as with all relations of trust, the thing or the person in which we place our trust can let us down. And this is true of climate as well. And it explains why the idea of climate change becomes such a powerful and disturbing idea. It's the fear of a world falling apart, which is this long, deep-seated common source of human anxiety. This anxiety is long-standing. It's manifest today in some of the language that we see uh, evolving around climate change. So we have weather weirding, we have freak weather, climate disruption, we have neologisms like weather bombs and snownadoes. Climate chaos must be stopped. So if climate change is an idea that performs these functions of stabilizing between the weather and our cultural life, then when the physical weather itself begins to change, the search for an explanation of that change becomes urgent and pressing. This uh, is illustrated uh, in the work of various anthropologists as they've worked around the world in different cultures. Just a couple of examples. Um, one here from the work of uh, Peter Ridgett Gould, the anthropologist working in the Western Pacific amongst uh, the Marshall Islands. And when he asked a, a particular islander uh, whether he believed in climate change, uh, and actually the English phrase, of course, climate change does not translate uh, well into Marshallese, the reply nevertheless was this, I think it may be true because I see that the Majatoto, which was the Marshallese equivalent here, the closest that could be found, the Majatoto is not very good nowadays. Life is harder, goods are expensive, the sun is stronger, and there are improper relations between kin. Climate change in this worldview becomes a metaphor for everything change. The unsettling of climate suggests nothing less than the unsettling of the matrix of relations uh, that uh, in this worldview hold reality together. Purposeful human life becomes difficult when climate is changing. 
Or uh, another example uh, from the nearby Solomon Islands, again from the work uh, of an anthropologist, Edvard Fidding from Norway. Uh, he, uh, 30 years ago, uh, doing field work uh, in these islands, um, just as the uh, uh, initial uh, messages around the, the human uh, influence in the climate system were beginning to circulate and to reach places like the Solomon Islands, uh, Hiddig, in conversation with a school teacher, uh, found that he expressed his concerns, the Solomon Islanders' concerns, about changes in weather patterns. The people of old told us how things are. They said that this wind will come at that time and finish after so many moons, and then the other wind will take over. All things, too, tides and rain and all the fish of the sea, whatever follow this, they said. And so all things have their time, and because the people of old knew to mark those times, they told us about this. And we believed them because we could see this with our eyes too. But now, I don't know. It seems that the weather is not straight anymore. I would like to trust what the people of old taught us. But one day I came to think that maybe they fooled us back then. Maybe things have never been as straight as they'd want us to believe. <clears throat> so let me summarize this first part of the talk then. Uh, what I'm suggesting is we need to understand what this idea of climate actually is and what it means to uh, us in the everyday. And I can summarize this through these three ways, if you will, uh, that the idea of climate performs for us. Climate, on the one hand, uh, is an index. This is how scientists would most likely think of it. It's a useful uh, description of some physical uh, reality. Hence, we have uh, all of the graphs and time series and numerics that climate scientists come up with. But climate is also, uh, as we've seen in some of these uh, explorations, an agent or a force. It's a power that exerts itself on our social worlds and on our material worlds. It seems to lead, it seems to cause uh, a significant change in both the imaginative and the physical and material. And then climate is an atmosphere, something that shapes our imagination, describes our mood uh, and our uh, apprehension of the future. And my point is that when we talk about climate change today, then these three different ways in which climate uh, uh, operates often get mixed and entangled together. It's not always quite clear which of these three particular associations of climate uh, we really are talking about. And I want to illustrate and illuminate this further then in the uh, second uh, part of the talk. Uh, and here um, I'm going to draw some examples from uh, the book Weathered to see how we can observe in different historical uh, and contemporary cultures how climate has this set of cultural associations, both past climate cultures but also uh, contemporary cultures. And these demonstrate the imaginative uh, and rhetorical meanings that climate can and do exert on our public life, just as much as they do illustrate the changes physically that are happening in the atmosphere. Climate, the idea of climate, is often deployed in public life to discipline personal, social, and political behaviors in contrasting ways to different ends. 
So the, the four examples I want uh, to give here um, is to show how climate changes in our, in our imagination, the idea of how climate gets entangled with biopolitics, to think about how, how climate prediction follows in a long line of cultural uh, uh, thought about the prophetic. And then uh, with new technologies emerging, how climates have become virtual. And then I will finish the talk with a few thoughts on the future of climate. The future of climate as an idea, not the future of our physical climates, but the future of how we're actually going to think about what sort of a thing climate is and what sort of cultural function in the future the idea of climate might have. So first of all, um, this example then of how climates change in the imagination. For early modern uh, Europeans, tropical climates were often understood as morally degrading, disease-ridden, and deadly. This was true of many 18th century conceptions of the climates of the Caribbean. Many writings from the time, for example, James Johnson's 1813 book, The Influence of Tropical Climates on European Constitutions, emphasized the importance of locality for determining the unhealthiness of tropical climates. A combination of a meridian sun, marshy, rotten soil, and heavy rains made it impossible for Europeans to think of a Caribbean island climate as anything but unhealthy. But changes in commerce, in medical knowledge, in the rise of international tourism had by the 20th century altered Caribbean climates in the eyes of most Europeans into a desirable commodity. Caribbean island climates with sunshine and warmth and predictable dry seasons began to be marketed for foreign consumption. For example, a 1905 hotel brochure from Barbados claimed that it was located in the, the most ideal winter resort of the tropics for tourists, invalids, and those seeking a genial climate. The warm tropical climate then now for Europeans, far from being a deadly deterrent, was now the Caribbean's best economic asset. Caribbean climate, then, had changed. Not changed physically, but changed in the European imagination to become one of the world's most idyllic tourist havens for sun-starved tourists. The second example uh, is around how climate gets entangled uh, with biopolitics. So there have been many uh, credible and persuasive accounts of blame and culpability uh, in, in human cultures. And they, these accounts of blame and uh, culpability uh, fulfill various political, social, and psychological needs. Climate very often gets bound up in these narratives of blame. Wars, economic performance, street violence, political despots, famine, property prices, suicides, the age of menstruation, many more phenomena have all been explained by climate. And the illustrative example uh, here comes uh, from the work of uh, uh, cultural uh, scholar Ashwini Tembe. And it concerns the 
uh, work of the League of Nations Convention on Trafficking, which met in the summer of 1921 in Geneva, attended by delegates from uh, 34 countries. The underlying ambition here was to protect girls from trafficking for prostitution and to do so by establishing a universal age below which practicing prostitution would be illegal. Establishing an international norm for this age of sexual consent at 21 years, which was the ambition uh, of the meeting, would allow more traffickers to be prosecuted under international law. But the meetings quickly ran into trouble regarding the very different cultural norms about the ages of consent and legalized marriage which prevailed in different nations. A proposal to exempt Eastern countries and tropical colonies from the age standard was rejected. No agreement was reached in Geneva in 1921, nor in a series of further meetings through the interwar years. And this disagreement focused on the age of first menstruation. Climate, in particular the average temperature of nations, entered the discussions as a useful explanatory force. French, Polish, and Italian delegates used climate as a shorthand to capture differences between the sexual mores of various nations. They successfully argued against a single international standard and instead lobbied to have differences between nations rest on the explanatory variable of climate. While it was clear to all parties that countries differed in their sexual practices, invoking the idea of climate as controlling the menage lent a naturalized certitude to these defensive justifications. In the end, this assertion and acceptance of climatically determined differences in the menage inhibited the League from ever reaching a consensus on an international age of consent, thwarting one of the goals of the anti-traffickers. So here we see how climate, the idea of climate, offered a convenient index of national differences in sexual practice, drawing upon the sciences of race, which the 19th century had earlier put into circulation. References to climate's imputed power over the human body performed important ideological work in naturalizing hierarchical relations between the nations. The third example explores climate prediction, and in particular, associating climate prediction uh, in association with the practice of prophets and prophecy. So there's a long cultural history of claims making about the future and scientific forecasting is only the latest in the tradition of prophetic knowledge. Numerical computer modeling of the climate is but just one means of predicting its future course. Yet climate predictions emerging from computer modeling stand in a long line of prophetic voices, all of whom have faced multiple yet similar challenges how is the prophet to be credible? How are they to carry authority in a society? 
How are they to be useful? By placing climate scientists in the cultural tradition of the prophet, rhetorician Linda Walsh, American uh, scholar, untangles the confusions and conflicts which climate predictions have generated in contemporary societies. At the heart of this confusion is the role and cultural expectation of the climate scientist. Walsh asks then, is their function, the climate scientist, is their function to reveal the climatic future as surely and accurately as possible, speaking from a stance of disinterestedness and scientific objectivity? Or is their role less about a dispassionate unveiling of the future and more about entering into a public dialogue about what Walsh refers to as, society, as a society's covenant values, those values of a, that a polity shares and which distinguish it from its neighbors. If it's the former, former revealing the future dispassionately and scientifically objectively, well, it's philosophically attractive, so we might argue, it separates the is from the troublesome ought, but, Walsh argues, it's rhetorically unstable. Scientific advisors are caught in an ethical catch-22. For example, governments call upon the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, to predict the future climatic consequences of their actions. When these answers align, with the existing rhetorical ambitions of these same governments, scientific advisors are lauded. But when critics want to challenge these policies, or when the climatic predictions misalign with the prevailing policies, the is-ought boundary is invoked by politicians to undermine the ethos of the scientist. And we could see this maneuver at work with respect to the climate gate uh, controversy a few years back uh, that emerged at one of my previous universities and the challenges that were subsequently made to the uh, integrity of the IPCC during the winter of 2009 and 10. So for Walsh, her argument then is that following in the line of the prophetic tradition, although our, our science advisors cannot tell the future or tell us what to do, they do and will continue to help us to know ourselves, to return us, as she puts it, to our covenant values, just as have all prophets done through the ages. And then my fourth example uh, concerns the uh, emergence of virtual climates. New digital visual technologies combined with the data storing capabilities of the cloud are transforming the way that climates can be visualized. Computer animations of the planet using Google Earth are changing the possibilities of how climates, past and future, can be made visual. Through these animations, climate, uh, in the words of Leon Gurevich, becomes both manufactured and remediated media. Climate is not just out there or in the mind, climate is now in the machine. 
future climates can be visualized and re-engineered so easily through these animating technologies that the feasibility, even the desirability of a future climate-engineered planet becomes normalized. The desire for climate control, previously achieved in homes, gardens, buildings, patios, and cars, can now find consummation in a thermostat-manipulated planet brought to life, as it were, through Google Earth's digital platforms. The point here that I'm making is that how climate is represented culturally, technologically, changes the imaginative possibilities of how people might invent or live with or alter their future climate. So this brings me to uh, my conclusion then, which is to say a few words about the future evolution of climate as an idea. How might we go into the future thinking about the idea of climate? So taking inspiration from Aaron Apadurai's book, The Future as Cultural Fact, I argue that the future of climate is not simply something to be predicted by climate models or by climate scientists. The evolution of the idea of climate is something to be shaped through the human imagination. And I offer here three possible ways then of thinking about how this idea of climate may be imagined in the future, which I put under these uh, uh, labels uh, modernist, eco-modernist, and non-modernist. So just a word about each of these uh, in turn. So first, uh, and most conventionally perhaps, is the prospect of climate being re-secured within desirable and safe limits. This is the modernist uh, impulse. By eliminating or at least minimizing the effects of human influences on the physical climates of the future, the ambition here would be to re-establish the degree of orderliness in the world, which is the historical function of climate uh, that I've referred to, to shore this up. The, this imaginary seeks to resettle what has become unsettled in our imaginations. And therefore, this way of thinking about the future of climate could be said to have great psychological merit. It fits within the tradition of modernist projects of control and mastery over the physical world. And issues uh, in the oft-repeated claim that a stable climate is a public good. And so we see uh, this uh, circulating in our contemporary discourses uh, <coughs> around climate change. Uh, these different ways of trying to secure uh, climate, either through governmental uh, projects. So we see, for example, the international negotiations uh, leading to the Paris Agreement, uh, <coughs> which is a project of transnational governance, if you will. Or we see it uh, through the technological uh, proposals to resecure climate by spraying particles into the stratosphere as a sun shield, uh, or to suck 
CO2 in vast volumes back out of the atmosphere and sequester it uh, under the surface. Or we see it in the calls for <coughs> socio-political change, uh, reorganizing uh, the functioning of the global capitalist economy. These are different uh, pathways, these are different proposals, but they all have as their goal the goal of resecuring climate. And in this sense, I uh, label uh, this way of thinking uh, uh, under the heading of modernist uh, uh, proposals. The second, though, um, what I call eco-modernist here, climate improvised, a different future for the idea of climate is offered uh, by this idea of improvisation, making it up as one goes along. So this imaginary recognizes the limits of modernist projects of control. Climate change cannot be solved. Climate cannot be resecured. But what matters are the efforts that people take to try to solve the conundrum that climate change has presented us with. The best that can be hoped for is a future of improvised but largely unknown climates, rather than of the resecured or restabilized ones that the modernist would try to deliver. Improvisation, then, it, it suggests a more humble disposition with regards to the relative powers of the human and the non-human. Yes, it recognizes the inevitability of purposeful human actions will have an influence on our future climates, but only within certain limits of possibility or knowability. Physical climates will always escape the desire for human management and control. So in contrast to the modernist position, this imaginary requires some reevaluation of the imaginative role of climate as a stabilizing, stabilizing idea, what I referred to right back at the beginning. This imaginary has different premises to the modernist impulse. Yes, humans do have planetary effects through their actions, but the physical processes will always exceed human control. It's an idea that uh, Nigel Clark has explored in his book, Inhuman Natures. This position has more in common, perhaps, with some eco-modernist thought. It also resonates with the metaphor of gardening, uh, as some writers have observed. Marcello de Paolo, for example, explores different attitudes to nature and suggests that gardening is a constant work of improvised creation. Gardening then becomes a metaphor for caring and making, mindfully and responsibly, but the gardener is always aware of their limited powers over the life forces of the garden. And then thirdly, uh, uh, what of this non-modernist uh, proposal, climate abandoned? Well, this is more uh, speculative and provocative. Uh, the very idea of climate should be abandoned or at least to abandon the function entirely of climate as an idea which in any sense stabilizes and brings security to human life. This imaginary position 
embraces the complexities and the deep unpredictabilities of future change and doesn't seek to extract climate as one special manifestation of an evolving world that is separate from everything else, one that is putatively at least controllable. So Margaret Atwood, the novelist, uh, puts it quite well um, when she says that uh, climatic change has no meaning. There can be no change which is merely climatic. I think calling it climate change is rather limiting, she says. I'd rather call it everything change. So this imaginary climate abandon suggests that the changing human condition has outgrown the usefulness of climate as an idea that any longer brings us security and order. The new normal of the Anthropocene is simply that there is no normal. The idea of climate, therefore, becomes a zombie idea of academic but little practical value. This possibility would appear to be quite disturbing for us, even disorienting, given what I've earlier said about Daston's orderly world. And this future, certainly of abandoning the idea of climate, is in contrast quite starkly to the modernist proposal to re-secure the climate. It would regard stabilizing climate at 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees or any degrees as a myth as much a distraction, for example, as the enduring myth of progress. And unlike the eco-modernist impulse of, of improvised climates, this position wouldn't even have climate as the object of purposeful action. Whatever the human future is about, whether it's about human enhancement, the creation of artificial intelligence, new measures of well-being, whether it's securing the sustainable development goals, whatever actually the human project is, it's not about securing the climate. And here, new guiding myths and concepts and metaphorical ideas beyond climate then would be needed to meet the emotional, spiritual, and material demands of living in an atmosphere which is now irretrievably of human making. Or to put this latter reading of climate slightly differently, to echo Pope Francis in his 2015 encyclical, it's not about the climate we want, as for example was claimed in the 2012 UN summit. Our powers of prediction and control are far too limited for that. As implied by Francis's encyclical, it's about the sort of people we want to become. And more than ever before, the weather in the future, in the Anthropocene, will come to reflect the moral standing of humanity. Rather than the old idea of a natural climate being something to which we can return and which will give us some security that grounds and guides our actions in the world, in the future, climate will be understood as reflecting our moral triumphs and failures on earth. Our struggles between corruption and justice, between greed and generosity, between ignorance and ingenuity, and between hubris and humility. Thank you very much. Thank you.
This has been an Australian Museum podcast.